Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Politics of Jesus, where we're learning how to live the upside-down way of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks for joining us. The word politics means the activities associated with the governance of a country or kingdom. In other words, it simply means the way people living in groups make decisions and live those decisions out as a community. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kingdom of God, an invitation to life in community, which is often upside down to the kingdom of this world. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, if you're using a Bible itself or a tablet or a screen, uh, if you would turn there, we're going to look at verses 13 through 16 today as we continue our series that we just heard about, the politics of Jesus. And last week, Steve launched that uh, first message in the series. And so we saw that the postures of the kingdom really matter. Today, we're going to talk about the uh, the uh, purpose of the kingdom. That's what the message notes should actually say instead of salt and light. But the purpose of the kingdom is what we're going to talk about today. Now, I want to try and put some things together before we look at the purpose of the kingdom according to Jesus. Uh, If you're following along in the notes, what I want you to see is that when Jesus gives this inaugural address, Jesus, if you're following along, Jesus renews God's plan to bless this world through people. Jesus renews God's plan to bless this world through people. Um, So we've been thinking about how he's going to go about this. And one of the things that you just saw in the bumper video is, is that Jesus, when he teaches these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his Sermon on the Mount, it's upside down. I really like what Steve said last week. He said, Jesus' kingdom is upside down to those kingdoms and governments of this world. His whole approach is going to be different. And also the purpose of his kingdom is going to be different. But notice this, is that the reason why he gives this whole message is that he's renewing God's plan to bless the world, and God's going to do it through people. Now, Abraham, he gave this promise back in Genesis 12, and let's just review it together as a church family. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, God said to Abraham. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see how God's plan was to use people to bless people? Now, In Galatians 3, we find out how this was fulfilled. So if you look at those verses, it says the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith and trust in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles, those who were not necessarily part of Israel, to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said all nations will be blessed through you. So... All who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Now look at verse 29 in that same chapter. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise that Abraham belongs to you. I will bless you, and I will bless all the peoples, all the nations of the earth 
through you. When you and I, by God's incredible grace, come to belong to Jesus, we now have a purpose and a calling and a promise. And he wants us to know how to live into that. So let me make a few comments as we get ready to look at these verses together. Notice this, if you will. Jesus teaches character comes before influence. This is what he teaches. As a character comes before influence. Where do I get that? Well, if you weren't here last week or you didn't listen to Steve's message, what he taught on last week is what's often called the Beatitudes. And these different characteristics of the kingdom, these postures of the kingdom, are really, they're not just things we try hard to do. They're the kind of character that Jesus begins to form and shape into us. Now, here's what I want to just say to you if you've never seen him before. He talks about being poor in spirit, mourning. He talks about being meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He talks about being merciful and being pure in heart. He talks about how you and I need to be peacemakers and also be ready to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. But here's what I want you to notice, is that although Jesus was sinless, all these describe the character of Jesus. Jesus became poor in spirit, though he was rich. And he also mourned over the reality of sin in this world. He wept as he rode into Jerusalem. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He saw the sin and it broke him. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with bitterest grief because of the sin in this world. He was a person who also was meek. He could have come with unbelievable firepower, but he came lowly and meek. And he said, come to me and I'll teach you how to be meek too. And then he also hungered and thirst for righteousness to rule and reign on this earth. He was more merciful and people couldn't get over it. He was pure in heart. He had one single goal and that was to please his father. And he was a peacemaker, even though he sometimes caused trouble by saying, I'm not interested in fake peace. I want real peace between you and God. And then he also was willing as more than anyone else to be persecuted for righteousness sake. And as people began to encounter his character, they realized there was something different about the quality of his character. And when he begins to work in your life and mine, he will work this same character in us. Friends, you and I all know this. The real temptation in following Jesus sometimes is for us to settle for image over character. Do I look like a Christian? Am I performing in a way that looks like I'm a Christian, even though underneath there may be all kinds of stuff that's still wrong with my attitudes and the way I'm thinking? No, Jesus wants to go all the way to our character. And so before he ever talks about the purpose of the kingdom, before he ever talks about the influence that we might have in this world, he says, it's not just any kind of character that I'm looking for in my kingdom. It's a certain kind of character. And that leads to this third line there in the notes if you're following along. When Jesus says you, and he's gonna say you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. When he says you, it's emphatic. It's in the emphatic position. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Those of you that have come to know me and are letting me influence your character, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so this is a really interesting thing. And, and, and we're gonna read these verses now. And then I wanna make a couple comments as we unpack the salt of the earth and the light of the world and how God wants to restore and bless this world 
through people like you and me? Is that amazing or what? Is that upside down or what? So let me read these verses. If follow along with me, there's only four of them. Verses 13 through 16. I got an easy one this week. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Would you mind praying with me? Now, Lord, influence me so that any influence I have is because of you. I'm indebted to you for saving me by your amazing grace and beginning that process of sanctifying me so that I might become more like you in character. And I know I'm in a room with other people that are on the same journey, and there are some in this room that haven't started it yet. Would you meet every person exactly where they are and help them know you and move forward with you? In your name we pray, and for your sake and for your glory, amen. So uh, when you think about this, would you mind reading that first gray box, uh, that, that verse again, verse 14, uh, in some of it, uh, verse 13, excuse me. Would you read that with me? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So as we think about the salt of the earth and light of the world, let me read something to you. Years ago, when I first became a pastor, I read a lot of books uh, by Eugene Peterson. And I, I was reminded of them again this morning. So let me just share a couple of quotes that touched me back then and still touch me. The metaphors Jesus used for the life of ministry are frequently images of the single, the small, and the quiet, which have effects far in excess of their appearance. Salt, leaven, light, seed, our culture publicizes the opposite emphasis, the big, the multitudinous, the noisy. But when it comes to doing something about what is wrong in this world, Jesus is best known for his fondness for the minute, the quiet, the slow. Yeast, salt, seeds, light. I love that. It's upside down. And when we think about the salt of the earth, notice when he means, what does he mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth? What's he mean? If you're following along, well, salt uh, prevents decay and adds flavor and seasoning. Salt prevents decay and adds flavor and seasoning. In Jesus' day, before there was ever refrigeration, many of you probably know this, and still in some places in the world where there is no electricity or refrigeration, People use salt. They pack it, they uh, rub it on meat and things like that that might begin to decay in order to slow that decay down to hold it back from its normal process. And the idea of salt, I put in my notes, quietly prevents decay. It's just quiet. It's not making a big loud noise, but it's just doing something in that process 
that actually is a favor to that meat. And it not only holds back decay, but it also adds flavor and seasoning. I, I am one of those people, I, I've read all the things people say about salt, and it hasn't slowed me down at all from using my salt shaker. Now, I just want to say this, some of you may have to, but I've noticed that I don't want to eat eggs without salt. I don't want to eat a number of foods without salt. Why? Because they make it more attractive to me if it has salt on it. And so, when you think about this in our lives, Jesus is saying, come on, in this world that not only is decaying because of the fall and has lost some of its taste and a whole purpose for living, you are the salt of the earth. You bring flavor into situations so that people can taste my goodness. You are the people that I want to bless other people through. And I'm going to ask you sometimes to stand against the decay and it'll put you in an awkward position, but I'm also going to ask you to do it in a way that's attractive. It's not self-righteous and pompous like the Pharisees. They're not doing it like I want my kingdom to be. So notice this too, though. This is really important. As the salt of the earth must keep its high potency and not become diluted. The salt of the earth must keep its high potency. What do I mean by potency? It's got to stay really salty. Now, it can't become diluted. Now, I did some research on salt this week, and what I want you to know is that salt in its purest form cannot lose its saltness. It can't lose its saltiness. But in Jesus' day, there was oftentimes, in order to, to make the salt uh, more available to people, they would often mix it and dilute it, and they would add additives to it. And even today, most table salt has additives in it, so that humidity, rain, different things like that can actually remove it from having its high potency. It's not as effective. It's not as flavorful. It doesn't necessarily hold back the decay as well. And so Jesus here is trying to say, you're the salt of the earth, but make sure you stay salt, which the only way for you and I to stay salt is to be salted by the salt himself. He is the one that influences us before we ever influence someone else. And to the extent that we try and be influential without his influence on us, we're ineffective. We become, to be, we become diluted. And I don't know if you're like me, but the temptation of living in this world is that I want Jesus and some of the things in this world to sometimes be my MO. And to the extent that I do that, the purity of his saltiness through me begins to be diluted. Um, notice Matthew 5.13 in the message paraphrase. I really like how it says it here. It says, if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? Now, godliness, don't let that word throw you. Godliness just means God-centered, God-influenced. And when you and I talk about being Jesus-centered, we mean we want to be fully under his influence and his control, his leadership, his guidance, so that if you and I are not going to be salty, then we'll lose that opportunity to be that kind of godly character in this world. And he says, just make sure you remember that. Now notice one more thing is that salt can only affect that which it gets up next to. Salt can only affect that which it gets up next to. 
So remember how I said they would rub the salt into the meat? Remember how I said that I don't like when the salt stays in my salt shaker? It has to get up next to something to have its influence. And so you and I may say to ourselves, when Jesus saved me, why didn't he just take me straight to heaven? If the whole goal is to get to heaven? But that's not his whole goal. His goal is to redeem and restore this world. And there's coming a day when he will fully do it. He'll make a new heavens and a new earth. But in the meantime, we have a purpose. We have a purpose. In fact, he prayed about this the night before he was crucified in John 17. Look what he says. Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. So what Jesus does is he saves us, puts a new spirit inside of us, and then he sends us back into the world to be people that just like Abraham become a blessing wherever he places us. And when you and I begin to understand that, it changes how we wake up in the morning. If we remember that we have that purpose, it changes how we pray when we wake up in the morning. And you and I can begin to see our assignment and our purpose in this world differently. No matter how well known we are or no matter how quiet and what corners of the world he places us in, God often does some of his greatest work in corners. He uses the quiet, the small, the unnoticed to often touch people in some of the deepest ways. So if you're a shy person, you can still be the salt of the earth. If you're a gregarious person, you can still be the salt of the earth as long as you and I let the salt of the earth himself salt us and keep us salty under his influence. Now, that's the first thing. He talks about that. Let me stop before I talk any more about the light of the world. Have you ever thought about how you came to believe and trust in Jesus and were drawn to him? For me, it was through people. And I've told this story many times, but when I was growing up, I was not an easy child to be a parent of. Uh, in case you need to ask my parents, they'll give you stories. But one of the things that seemed to have a recurring uh, uh, practice in my life was discipline. And so I, there were just times that I was snarky. There were times that I was difficult. There were times that I was moody, grumpy, difficult. And so, but when I would disobey my mother, my father was the agent of that discipline. Now, we lived in the days of spanking, and I'm not completely against spanking. I'm just telling you, it's got to be done in the right way. But my dad, he never abused me, but I remember that he was quick to make sure that that happened in case I needed a reminder of why my behavior was unacceptable. So I remember one time I had sassed off to my mom or something, and I'm walking down the hall, and he, he catches me, and he, he begins to spank me. And, and it, we're heading towards my bedroom, so I know there, there's a destination. And as we're walking down the hall, I just remember he spanked me once or two, you know, two or three swats, and it felt like the third one, he was throwing a little extra in. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, I don't mean that he hit me harder. What I mean is it, I could feel his frustration and anger coming through. So he said, and I want you to go on and lay down on your bed, and I want you to think about what you just did with your mom. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do a lot of thinking. 
I'm going to do a lot of thinking about how you just disciplined me too. And I'd be laying there in my bed and I'd be hardened, my heart would be hardening, right? And I'd be thinking, I got a case against my parents. And I'd be telling God, you know, you know, he's a pastor. Okay? And I'd be getting there and I'd be thinking all about what they did wrong. I wasn't thinking about me at all. And more times than I can count, my dad would come in and say, Jeff, you know what you did with your mom was wrong, right? And I'd, yeah. Well, you know that I needed to discipline you, right? Yeah. But the way I just disciplined you, the Lord just showed me that my spirit wasn't, wasn't in the place it should have been. Would you forgive me? And that just ruined everything. Because now my case against him, and here's, here's why I tell that story. Here's what I want to tell you. I, didn't, I couldn't put it in words then, but I can put it in words now. God had rubbed off on my dad. And then when my dad rubbed off on me, it was disarming. It was different. It was of a different character. And that humility, that teachableness, that kind of spirit won me when I had all kinds of objections to Christianity. And I'm telling you this because in case you and I wonder how much it matters, how much we listen to the Lord, it matters. Here's the truth. It's not a question of whether or not you and I will have influence in this world. It's what kind of influence will we have? It's not a question of whether or not you and I will be influenced in this world. It's who or what will influence us. We all have a rub-off factor in this world. Even unbelievers do. But I, for one, the older I get, want the rub-off factor I have to be totally dictated by Jesus. Because I've seen the power of it. And I'm a follower of Jesus because of it. So let me talk to you about the light of the world because Jesus goes on. Would you read that next verse in the, the gray box with me there? You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now notice this, is that the light of the world, if you're following along, uh, shines brightest in darkness and by doing good makes things visible. Shines brightest in the darkness and by doing good makes visible. So uh, one of the things I love about this is that when Jesus says you're the light of the world, some of us go, yeah, but the world's getting darker. And I think I've heard more people say that in the last year than I've ever heard before. But here's what's interesting. The darker it gets, the brighter the light gets. So I, I couldn't do it right here as an example. So this week, uh, Mara helped me go in, in the worship uh, arts practice room that it was darker, and I just did something. So just watch. Again, this is not going to be a huge uh, insight to you, but I thought it'd be just helpful to see it. Now that's just one little candle in that room. And its influence far exceeded its size. 
But some of you have been here on Christmas Eve when this room before COVID is filled and each one of us had a candle. And many of you have told me it's one of the most meaningful moments in your life in this church when we do this. But when we each have our candle lit and we lift it, the room changes. And God wants us to remember pictures like that when he says, when you let me influence you, you're the light of the world. You can be that way. And sometimes you're going to do it together. And sometimes you'll be placed individually in different places. But shine, shine in the darkness. And I don't know about you, but if you have thought about this, the fact that it is sub-zero today, is anybody, anybody in this room glad the sun's shining? Praise God, there's just hope. It has an uplifting kind of thing. And let me be honest, some people that want to continue to not obey God do not like when they see light coming. If I'm hiding and I'm trying to cover up something, I don't want to see you coming with your flashlight. I don't want to see you coming with your candle. But the truth is, if I'm thinking correctly deep down, I want to come to the place where I'm sick of living in the light, in the darkness, where I'm sick of covering up, where I'm sick of hiding, and therefore the light can be good news. Now notice this, that it isn't meant to stay private, but to benefit others. The light of the world isn't meant to stay private, but to benefit others. I can't tell you how many times people have said, well, my faith is private. They've almost said it like, there, that's all I needed to say. And all I want to tell you is Jesus never, ever, 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 ever meant for your faith to be private. He meant you to do things in secret with the Father that the Father only saw, but he never meant for it to just be for you and me only. He meant for it to be benefit the world. And therefore, we need to remember that and remember this. Look at Titus 2.14, if you would. Titus 2.14, this is what we're reminded of, of why Jesus gave his life. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and make us his very own people, totally, totally committed to doing good deeds. Not just good deeds for the sake of good deeds, but now with a motivation that those good deeds would actually cause people to look heavenward. And if you're following along, here's the idea. Now we do good so people may glorify our Father. Now we do good so people may glorify our Father. Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, said this in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. And what's the next part, friends? And glorify God on the day he visits us. You know what? I knew my dad wasn't that good. (laughs) But I knew that when he let God get to him, he became a good dad. And you and I, when we think about work, when we think about our home relationships, isn't it the hardest to shine our light at home sometimes? But those are the places he wants to shape our character. And those are often the labs, the laboratories where he teaches us these valuable lessons that it's more about character than image. And therefore, it takes time and it takes endurance and it takes humble postures, but he will, he will use that. And so Tim Keller tells a story that I love. In his book on work entitled Every Good Endeavor, he shares how years ago he heard in one unforgettable example of a Christian who showed Jesus kind of integrity and compassion. 
Not long after, Tim Keller says, we began our church in New York City, I saw a young woman who was obviously visiting and darting out after each service. One week I intercepted her. She told me she was exploring Christianity. She didn't believe in it at that point, but she found a lot of it interesting. I asked her how she had found Redeemer Church, and she told me this story. She worked for a company in Manhattan, and not long after starting there, she made a big mistake that she thought would cost her the job. But her boss went in to his superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he lost some of his reputation and ability to maneuver within the organization. She was amazed at what he had done and went in to thank him. She told him that she had often seen supervisors take credit for what she had accomplished, but she had never seen a supervisor take the blame for something she had done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. He was very modest and deflected her questions, but she was insistent. Finally, he told her, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That's why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him for a long moment and asked, where do you go to church? He suggested she go to Redeemer, and so she did. His character had been shaped by his experience of grace in the gospel, and it made his behavior as a manager attractive and strikingly different from that of others. This lack of self-interest and ruthlessness on the part of her supervisor was eventually life-transforming for her. Praise God. That can happen. And so what I want you to see here is at the bottom, do you see that equation? Do you see those letters? This is kind of an adaptation from a book I read years ago called Becoming a Contagious Christian. And again, HP plus CP plus VW equals MI. What do those mean? Well, if we take Jesus, especially his message about salt, let me just spell it out for you. That if you and I are gonna have the kind of impact and influence that he wants us to have as we serve our purpose in the world, we need to keep these things in mind. So here's the first one. If you're following along, you'll see it on the screen. HP stands for high potency, high potency. In other words, you and I need to keep being influenced and effective because we're being influenced by Jesus. We're truly salty. Second, CP stands for close proximity. Close proximity. We need to get up near someone in order to possibly have any kind of influence. So let me ask you, who has God already put you near? First, we already talked about it, your family. But if you live alone, even then, you have other people that are in your circle and your sphere of influence. Who are those people? Who are you in close proximity with? The third thing here is, is that VW, that stands for verbal witness. At some point, just like that manager had to say, it was because of Jesus. You and I are gonna have to, at some point, not just say, well, I'll just do good. We need to be ready to acknowledge that it was Jesus who is the secret of our life. And it may not be a big deal. It may be, I once was blind, but now I see because of Jesus. I once was lost. This is what I used to be like, but now because of Jesus, I can be more like this. That's the kind of thing. And the last thing, MI, means maximum impact. If you and I want to really live out these words, then we need to stay not only in the character of the kingdom, the postures of the kingdom, but we need to remember the purpose of the kingdom that God has for us. And this will be an entirely different way that people live and are governed by Jesus this way. So as we come to the end here, I wanna just ask you, 
Where have you placed me, Lord, to be salt and light with you? Where have you placed me? So I know that I live in the subdivision I live for a reason. A neighborhood that God's placed me in. And so now I want to be one of those people that part of salt and light for me is that when I walk the circle of 55 houses on my street, I want to pray that God will influence me and that somehow he, if he wants to use me, he'll use me, but he'll also influence our neighborhood even beyond me. And that kind of a way is just seeing salt and light, the purpose. Um, again, this last week, I told you that God's been opening a door for me to spend more time with people outside the walls of our church. On Thursday, I, had, I spent five hours training the executive team of the Peoria Housing Authority in how to have a healthy culture. As I walked out of there, I just said, Lord, please help me help these people that are having such an influence on this city because they're on the front lines and they're doing hard work. Help me be salt and light to these people. I could go on and on, but the point is, is that you and I will be in situations where if we will just see, God, where have you placed me that I'm in close proximity? And for however long I'm in close proximity, please let the rub off factor of my life, even if I never find out about it, be glorifying to you. And the last thing here is, is there a habit or area in my life that's hurting my witness? Is there a habit or area in my life that's hurting my witness? I don't know if you've thought about this, but again, it's not a matter of if you're a believer, you'll have a witness. It's what kind of witness you'll have. Same for me. So I've told this story a number of times. This is one of my favorite stories ever. So if you've heard it a hundred times, just say, I've heard it a hundred times. There was a missionary that was translating the New Testament. And he had the help of a native person there who worked alongside him for months. It took, it took well over a year or two. And at the end of that time, when they were finally finishing up the last part of the translation, the missionary turned to this native man and he said, now that you've read the New Testament and learned all about Jesus, are you ready to follow him and become a Christian? And the native man just looked at him very tenderly and humbly and said, I, I've never seen one. And the missionary said, well, I'm a Christian. What do you mean? He said, well, I don't mean to be condemning, but I've been here every day to help you. And every day without fail, you've complained about how hard it is, about how you wish this go faster. And all I've heard mostly is just a complaining spirit. And the missionary got quiet for a moment. And then he said, you're right. You are so right. That's not like Jesus, is it? Will you forgive me? And the native man looked at him and said, I'm beginning to see a Christian. I don't know about you. I'm not the salt of the earth or the light of the world because I never mess up. I am because Jesus, by his grace, gave me a purpose. And when I get it wrong, I can learn how to still be shaped and influenced by Jesus. And if I will be that, just like my dad didn't always parent me perfectly the first time around, God could still get through to me because he chose the character of the kingdom in order to live out the purpose of the kingdom. Is anybody else grateful for the Lord? I'm so grateful for his faithfulness, for his high call, 
his purpose for us. I have a reason for getting out of bed in the morning. Amen. Do you? It's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a follower of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook. Facebook.